There are, there are many significant moments in recent history that have been photographed. Uh, you have the Wright brothers, you have their first flight uh, on an airplane, that's a very significant uh, moment. You have the United States landing on the moon, uh, you have Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston in a heavyweight fight, you have Michael Jordan uh, being Michael Jordan, uh, you have Will Smith slapping the snot out of Chris Rock as... Um, there are a lot of moments, significant moments, memorable moments in recent history, and these are, these are just a few of them, but if you could photograph significant moments in the Old Testament, if you, could, if you could photograph significant moments in the book of Genesis, Genesis 15 would be at the top of the list. Uh, this is arguably the most important uh, moment in the Old Testament in redemptive history for at least two reasons. The first reason is that Genesis 15 is the first time the Bible, the first time in the Bible we see the word believe. Certainly, people lived by faith before Genesis 15. Uh, you find people trusting God, obeying God, walking with God. But the word believe is not used, and the mechanics of faith are not obvious until Genesis chapter 15. And so it's in Genesis chapter 15 that we get more and more clarity about the nature of faith in God. On top of this, Genesis 15 is the first time in the Bible we see the relationship between faith and righteousness. Genesis 15 answers the question, how can sinful human beings have a relationship with a righteous God? How is it possible for sinful human beings to have a relationship with a holy God? If God is like a forest fire, a giant forest fire, and human beings by nature were like ice cubes, how can ice cubes walk closely with the forest fire? Uh, we are different, God is holy, we are not holy. And this question, feeds into the question, the bigger question, how do you spend eternity in heaven instead of hell? And Genesis 15 answers these questions and many more very clearly. So there's much here for us to learn. Let's look at verse 1, Genesis 15, verse 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. After chapter 14, you would, you would anticipate Abram being on a spiritual high. He's just defeated Cater Laomer in battle. It was a stunning victory. God helped Abram to defeat an army that was much bigger and stronger than his. He was able to rescue Lot, his nephew. Uh, he met with Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem, who was a righteous man, a godly man, and he, he received a blessing from Melchizedek. Life is going pretty well for Abram on many fronts. And and yet, in verse 1, we find Abram in a place of fear and doubting. He's not in a position where he's thanking God, walking with God, and his faith is strong. Rather, he's in a place of fear and doubting. He has fears about the future and doubts about God. Now, why is he afraid, and why is he doubting God? Why does he have fears about the future, and why is he doubting God? Well, it's because he's experiencing a tension in his soul. And this is the same tension that we feel all the time. This is the way I would describe it. That God's timeline for Abram does not equal Abram's time, timeline for Abram. That he is experiencing this tension because he has hopes and dreams and desires about the future. And the timeline of God does not line up with Abram's timeline. And when God's timeline and your timeline do not match, it produces all kinds of fears. It produces all kinds of doubts in our souls. Like You, you begin to wonder, God, do you see me? God, do you care about me? Have you forgotten us? Do you see all the sadness that Sarah and I are experiencing because we do not have a child? And so Abram pours out his heart to God. He pours out his complaint 
to God in verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what can, we give, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. He says, God, you've given me all of these possessions and I appreciate it, but you promised that I would become a great nation. And Sarah and I, we have no children, so how is this going to work out? Abram and Sarah, they really wanted a child. And so they're wrestling with being childless. And there are some goals in life where time is your friend. You can have big desires, big dreams, and time is your friend. Like if you want to be a millionaire, uh, time is your friend. You save a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. You can make investments and that money can grow. But then there are other goals, other desires where time is not your friend. Like if I wanted to run a four-minute mile, that'd be, a, that'd be a tall task, but I've been running for a long time. And believe it or not, I'm not actually that far away from a four-minute mile. I just need to shave off about six minutes or so for my, for my current pace, and I, I should be able to get there. But see, as time moves on, I'm getting further and further away from a four-minute mile. And as time was moving on for Abram and Sarah, they were getting further and further away from having a child. And Abram knows it, and he's experiencing this tension in his soul. He's wrestling with God, and we need to notice how God responds to Abram. How does God respond to someone in doubt? If someone has genuine fears and doubts before God, how does God respond to them? Does he hit him with a lightning bolt? Does he hit Abram with a lightning bolt? Does he put boils on top of his head? What does he do? How does God respond to Abram? Well, God is so patient with Abram. He is so kind to Abram. He knows that Abram has genuine doubts, genuine fears, and he's wrestling through them. And all throughout the scriptures, when people have genuine doubts, genuine fears, you see the kindness of God extended to them. You see that God steps in and helps people in their weakness as they are wrestling. All throughout the scriptures, you see this principle that complaining about God is sin. You ought not to complain about God, but complaining to God is prayer. Complaining to God is prayer. The psalmists say over and over again, I pour out my complaint to you. I bring my complaint to you. And you see all the emotions and the human experience found in the book of Psalms because the psalmists are pouring out their heart. They're wrestling with God over what they are experiencing. And so brothers and sisters, I just want to urge you to take your fears and doubts to God. What do you do with your doubts? Take them to God. What do you do with your fears? Take them to God. What do you do with your anxiety? Take them, your anxieties, take them to God. Cast your anxiety on the Lord, for he cares for you. And because of Christ, we can come boldly before the throne of God, knowing that we are gonna find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And so God is kind and gracious to Abram. He doesn't zap him with a lightning bolt. That's not what happens. And please notice also that God is not content with where Abram is at. So if you find yourself in a place of where you, you have fears, and you are doubting God and you don't know what to do, you need to understand that God is not content to leave you there. He is going to work to move you to a place of faith in him. Now, how does God address Abram's fears and his doubts? Verse 4, now the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is what God does. Is he gives him his word. He's going to speak his word into Abram's life. And this is not all that God does for Abram, but this is one thing he certainly does for Abram. He gives him his word. This is the primary way God intends to deal with your fears. How does God intend to deal with your anxiety? Through his word. 
How does he intend to deal with your doubts? Through his word. Abram had experienced so much blessing. He had seen the hand of God, and yet he still has fears and doubts because this is part of the human experience. The human experience is riddled with fears and doubts. Sometimes they're reasonable, and sometimes they're not. This is part of the human experience. And God is gonna give Abram his word. This is why the most important discipline in the Christian life is hearing the word of God. You need God's word in your life more than you understand. You need God's word more than you do your daily bread. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. And so Abram is in a place of fear and doubting, but by the time we get to verse six, verse six says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He moves from fear and doubting God to faith and confidence in God. He ends up trusting God. Now, what lessons do we learn about faith, the life of faith, from this passage? Well, scholars have observed three components of genuine biblical faith. That's what we want. The Christian life from start to finish is a life of faith. What is God calling you to today? If you're a Christian, what is he calling you to today? The answer is a life of faith, to walk with him by faith. And tomorrow, what is God calling you to? To walk with him by faith. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, what is God calling you to? To walk with him by faith. And so there are three components that scholars have observed over the years, throughout the centuries, that are necessary. These components are necessary to have a biblical, God-pleasing faith. The first component is knowledge. You need knowledge. You cannot believe in what you do not know about. You cannot believe in what you do not know about. Romans 10, 14, how can they believe without hearing about him? How could someone ever believe in Christ if they've never heard about Christ? How could anyone ever believe the promises of God if they don't know the promises of God, if they haven't heard the promises of God? And this is a significant truth to understand because many people believe that biblical faith is faith in faith. But biblical faith is not faith in faith. Biblical faith is not wishful thinking. Biblical faith is not mindless positivity. Biblical faith is faith in the word of God. It is faith in the promises of God. If biblical faith was just positive thinking, you would not need the Bible. If that's all it was, if biblical faith was positive thinking, all you need to do is think happy thoughts. Just think happy thoughts, but that's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is not a moral code. God is not just calling us to a moral code. He is calling us to a moral code, but he's calling us to something much greater, much higher than that. If biblical faith was just a moral code, you would not need the Bible. One observation I wrote out in my notes this week is that the promises of God form the foundation of our faith. The promises of God form the foundation of our faith. No promises from God, no word from God, then no faith in God. You can't believe in a God who doesn't tell you who he is. You can't believe in a God who does not give you his word. And so biblical faith has content. There's content to it. In the Christian life, sentences matter. Verses matter. Phrases matter. Words matter. Look at the content of the word of God in verse four. Now the word of the Lord came to him, came to Abram. This is what God says. This one will not be your heir. Eliezer of Damascus will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. God is promising Abram that he will have a child, a child that will come from his own body, not just an adopted child, 
but a child that would come from his, old, from his own body, even though he's very old at this point. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. So not only will you have one child, but the descendants from that child will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so faith begins with what God has said. But biblical faith is more than just knowing what God has said. We all understand that. The biblical faith is more than knowing what God has said. Tons of people know, millions of people know what God has said, and yet they're not walking by faith. There's a second component, which is assent. Assent. To assent or to affirm, I think might be a better word. You cannot believe in what you do not affirm to be true. You cannot believe in what you do not affirm to be true. If you think something is not true, by definition, you cannot believe in it. So in order to have real faith, you must believe that the, that the claim that is being made, the verse in the Bible, the word of God is actually true. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To believe Genesis 1.1 is to affirm the claim. It's to affirm that the claim is true. So who created the heavens and the earth? Where did it come from? The God of the Bible created. The heavens and the earth. Everything that we see has been created by God. So to believe that promise is to affirm the truthfulness of the claim. And for Abram to believe the promise of God meant he needed to affirm the truthfulness of the claim. Look back at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. See, to have faith, Abram has to say, that's true. A, or Eliezer will not be. Eliezer will not be my heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be my heir. Abram has to say, I don't know how it's going to work, but God is going to give me a child from my own body. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. I've been thinking all week about why God takes Abram outside. He's inside, probably in a tent, and he takes him outside. Now, why does he do this? We're not told, but I think it's obvious what's going on. I think Abram is trapped in his own head. Do you ever get there? Do you ever get there in your life where you're just trapped in your own head and you have all these thoughts running around in your mind? And you, you, it's hard to sort them out. And I can just see Abram mumbling to himself, our sheep are having babies. You know, our servants are having babies. By golly, our fleas are having babies. Everything is having babies all around us. And we can't have any kids. What's up with that, God? And God just says, go outside. <laughs> just you go outside. Stop. You got to get out of your head, Abram. And go look at the stars. Go look at the stars. We've all had that, that moment where we go outside on a clear night and you look up. And even though you know the stars are there, you're stunned by what you see. You're just stunned. And I'm sure this is what is happening to Abram. He looks up and he sees the stars and he's reminded of the one who made the stars. And the logic is clear. God is saying, Abram, if I made the stars and if I made you, I can give you a child. I can give you a child, and I can, I can make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Uncountable. Uncountable. On its face, it's a very difficult promise to believe, but this is what Abram has to wrestle with. Is it true? Will God give me a child, and will my descendants be as numerous as the stars in the sky? So biblical knowledge, or biblical faith, knows what God has said. Do you know what God has said? Do you know what God has promised you? Biblical faith knows what God has said. 
Biblical faith affirms what God has said to be true, that what God has said is true. But there's still a third component to faith that you must have. I mean, just think about it for a moment. I'm going to make a, a claim. Hopefully this is not too offensive, but here we go. High fructose corn syrup is not good for you. High fructose corn syrup is not good for you, and it's bad for you. That's the claim. Now you have the knowledge. You got the knowledge? And most of us would affirm this claim to be true. We would say, that's true. High fructose corn syrup is not good for me. It's bad for me. Most people have this knowledge, and most people would affirm this statement to be true. But then there's a third step. Okay, there's a third step. We, we know it. We affirm it. But then many, many of us, will, we will go out and we'll drink Mountain Dew. We'll guzzle Mountain Dew all day long. Okay, hopefully this is not too offensive. Remember, just give me grace here. And we'll, dr we'll drink it, even though we know it. We know and we affirm it. But then something else happens. There's a third component to biblical faith. And this is the component that probably most of us in this room lack more than the first two. Most of us know more than we practice. Most of us affirm more than we practice. So what's the third component? The third component is trust, or I think maybe a better word is commitment. It's commitment. You do not believe in God until you entrust yourself to God. You do not believe in him until you, in your heart, entrust yourself to him. This is what Abram does in verse six. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. One scholar says, trust involves surrendering oneself to God. Trust involves, it's not just assent. It's, it's more than just knowledge. It's more than affirming something to be true. Trust, belief, involves surrendering oneself to God, placing confidence in his grace, and entrusting our lives to his care. This, this is the heart issue of biblical faith. It goes beyond knowledge. It goes beyond agreement. And it gets right to the center of your being. Do you trust God? And if you do, you surrender. If you do, you give your life to him. You know, one helpful image for me is imagining a little girl lost in New York City. This little girl is surrounded by tons of people who are moving in a thousand different directions. And she doesn't know where she's at. She doesn't quite know what she's doing. She can't see where she needs to go. And then her dad comes. And her dad reaches out his hand for his daughter. Biblical faith is that daughter reaching up her hand, or reaching up her hand to grab the hand of her dad. That's what, that's what faith is. It's reaching back. God is reaching through his promises, through his word. He is reaching out to us. And faith responds by grabbing the hand of God. This is the very heartbeat of faith. It's where you say, okay, I don't even know where I'm at, and I don't know exactly where we're going, and I don't know what to do, but I'm going to grab my dad's hand, and I'm going to follow him. That's what I'm going to do. And this is what Abram does in this passage. He believes the Lord. He says, okay, I don't know how it's going to work. I've wanted a, a kid my whole life, and we don't have any kids. I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to grab your hand. I'm going to trust you. And so many people get stuck here. We know, we affirm, and then we live life on our own terms. We know, we affirm, and then we live life on our own terms. We never grab God's hand. And see, Abram needed the Lord. He needed the Lord, and he knew he needed the Lord. And I want to make something very clear here, that biblical faith, biblical faith is not a commitment 
to mindless optimism. In this situation with Abram and Sarah, God is making a specific promise to them that they are going to have a child. And it's not reasonable for human beings to believe they're going to have children when they're 100 years old unless God makes that promise. And so this is not a commitment. It's not a faith that biblical faith is not a commitment to mindless optimism. God is not calling us to live our lives with mindless optimism. God is not calling us to ignore reality. I think people who ignore reality are probably, at least to me, they're the most annoying people on the planet. They're the most annoying people on the planet. It's like, just look at reality. I remember when I was in high school, I played football for the Johnston Dragons, JHS, and we were, we were playing against Dowling. And Dowling, they have a great football program. I think they were back-to-back-to-back state champions or something like that. They were ranked in the top 10 in the country. And we got really pumped up to play them. We knew we were going to lose, of course. Like, we didn't have a chance. But we, you got to get pumped up to go play the game. And at the end of the first quarter, it was 42 to nothing, uh, which was really bad. And at halftime, it was even worse. I don't, I don't remember what it was, but it was terrible. And I played on the offense, and I came, I came off the field. And I, my head, like, is getting smashed in. My face is smashed in. I'm just getting beat up on the football field. And we're down by, like, 100 points. I don't, I don't, I don't even remember what it was. It was brutal, but I remember the cheerleaders. Come on, dragons, you can do it. Put a little power to it. Go, 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 dragons, go. And I remember thinking to myself during the game, ladies, you do not understand the nature of the problem here. You don't, you don't understand the nature, you don't get the nature of the problem. We can't do it, that's, that's our problem. And the longer this goes on, the worse it's going to be for us. And so bi- biblical faith is not the cheer. You need to understand this. Biblical faith is not the cheer. Come on, Christian, you can do it. Put a little power to it, or whatever the cheer would be. That's not what it is. Abram's problem, Abram's problem is not that he lacked effort. That's not his problem. Abram did not lack effort. And so when Abram is thinking about life and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do and God makes him this promise and he believes the promise, what he's doing is he's shifting his confidence away from himself. He's looking at reality. He's considering reality. And he's considering the promises of God. And so biblical faith is facing reality with the promises of God. God is not calling us to live in never, never land. He wants us, God wants you to look at the world as it is and then to believe his promises. Now, what reality did Abram have to face? Romans 4, 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old. I I love this, I love this. He's like, okay, my body at 100 years old is gonna be as helpful in creating a baby as a dead body, not helpful. He did not weaken in faith when he considered. He actually observed this reality. He considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old, and he also considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. Notice the wisdom of Abram. He did not call Sarah's body dead. It's her womb that's the problem. Sarah, you still got it, baby. You look great. You don't look a day over 90 years old. It's your womb that's the problem. Okay, so my dead body, my dead body plus Sarah's dead womb, that is not a recipe to have a child. 
That's not reason for hope. So he's looking at reality. But what Abram does is he takes into consideration the promise of God. Verse 20. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because what? Because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. This is the very heartbeat of Christianity. This is the very heartbeat of the life of faith, that what God promises, he will do. He will do it. And we are putting our hope, our confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. But in him. The Christian life from start to finish is a life of faith. It it, It is a life of putting our confidence in God himself. And we need to notice the immediate result of Abram's faith. So he believes. He's wrestling. He's doubting. He has fears. Wrestling, doubting, fears, and eventually... He believes. What's the result? Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it, God credited it to him as righteousness. If you could go back in time and photograph significant moments in redemptive history, this might be the most significant moment, the most important picture you could take. Because this is how someone goes to heaven instead of hell. This is how a human being is made right with a holy God. This explains the very heartbeat of being a Christian. This is the verse that the Apostle Paul uses to build the doctrine of justification. And the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, is built on this verse. Now, what does justification mean? Well, the Greek word means to declare righteous. Justification is the act of God looking at a person and declaring them to be as righteous as he is. Looking at a person saying, you are as righteous as I am, possessing the very righteousness of God. This is a description of what it means to be a Christian. It's not like a next level Christian, a super spiritual Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the definition of salvation. Saved from sin, counted as righteous. Made righteous by the grace of God. Now, categorically, there are two ways human beings will pursue justification. Two ways people will pursue righteousness. The first is by works. This is a summary of justification by works. Here it is. Justification is achieved by grace plus your moral effort. We need God's help, but you also need to try really hard. And there are many gospel preaching churches in our city, and praise God for that. And there are many churches that will preach works. Works as a result, or salvation as a result of your works. Justification on the basis of your works. You're not a good person, you need to be better. Go to church, get baptized, take communion, obey the Bible, help the poor. All of those things are good, but God will never accept you if that's your strategy. You will die and go to hell for sure, for sure, if this is your strategy. You're not good enough. You don't have enough righteousness in yourself. Justification by works is a one-way ticket to hell, for sure. So don't do that. Okay, what's the other, what is the other path towards justification? Well, this is how I would summarize it. It is justification, or justification is received by grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification is received by grace alone, 
through faith alone in Christ alone. That justification is a gift you don't deserve. You have not earned it. And there's nothing you could do to earn it. That forgiveness of sins is a gift. Being made right with God is a gift that is received by the grace of God through faith, faith alone in Christ alone. Abram, in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He was given righteousness. Now, was Abram as righteous as God in himself? No. He was guilty. He was a guilty sinner worthy of hell. And yet God justified the ungodly. He declared Abram to be as righteous as himself. Now, there are two illustrations built into verse 6 that help me understand the doctrine of justification. The first is a legal illustration. It is the courtroom of heaven where the presence of God is at, the holiness of God is seen, the glory of God is experienced, and your sin comes rushing into that courtroom. Your porn habits go right into the courtroom of God. Your lying habits go right into the courtroom of God. Your greed, your selfishness, your pride, your sexual immorality, your bitterness, your anxiety. Everything goes into the presence of God. And in that moment, you recognize you're guilty and that you have nothing to offer God. You're guilty, you're condemned, you're worthy of hell. That is what we deserve. But see, to be justified means that although you are guilty and you've sinned against God, God counts you or declares you to be righteous, to be as righteous as he is. Now, you may be wondering, if you're guilty of sin and you're not righteous, how can God declare a guilty sinner righteous if they're not righteous? How does that work? Well, this is why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Jesus, he became a man and he lived a sinless life. He, and he fulfilled all of the requirements of God's holy law on your behalf. Jesus came to live the life that God requires you to live. That God, in order to have a relationship with him, in order to spend eternity with him, God requires perfection out of you. And none of us have met that standard. And so Christ came and he lived the life that God requires of each one of us. And then he went to the cross voluntarily to die in our place, that Christ died a substitutionary death. He substituted himself for us. Where at the cross, the greatest exchange in the history of the world happened. The great exchange, exchange happened. Where Jesus took all of our sins, all of the guilt of our sins were laid on him. I mean, think about that. The guilt and the burden of our sins laid on him. And not only does he get our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. That righteous record that he earned, he gives to us as a gift. And so because of what happens at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ taking the wrath of God on our behalf, we can be forgiven and made righteous. And so if you're a Christian, you've been justified by faith. You, you, and you now stand in a position of righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees the very righteousness of his son. You've been clothed in his righteousness, a righteousness not of your own, but the righteousness of God. And remember, it's not something you earned. I'm a Christian. God has saved me by his grace, and I'm a deeply flawed human being. 
but I stand righteous in Christ. And therefore, I am at peace with God. Therefore, God is my father. Therefore, I possess eternal life. And so the first picture, it is a legal picture where God declares us righteous through the righteousness of his son. The second picture is financial. It's financial. Now, I'm not saying it works quite like this, but just imagine for a moment a child is born and that child uh, has the flesh, the sinful desires, sinful impulses. And that child, as that child grows up, that child sins, that child lies, that child lusts, that child is selfish and proud. And every time they sin, it's like that kid is swiping the credit card, swiping the credit card. Every sin, every lie, every time they gossip, every proud thought, every proud exchange with other people, every bitter thought, all the stuff that condemns us, it's like swiping the credit card. And that debt keeps accumulating and building up. And eventually that debt comes due. And what the scriptures teach is that the wages of sin is death. The payment for our sin, the payment for our debt is our life. People go to hell to pay their debt to God. That's what, what's going on in, in hell is that, is that God is punishing them for their sin. There, there's a debt to pay. That debt is hell. And if God just treated us that way, that's what we would face. But God has not just treated us that way. He has been merciful to us. That's why Jesus came into the world. And instead of racking up debt, he never sinned. He has no debt. In fact, he's the exact opposite. He's totally righteous. And throughout his life, he accumulated the wealth of his righteousness. And Christ is infinitely rich. He's infinitely righteous. But at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ took our credit card statement and he paid for it. Now, how did he pay for it? With his blood. He died the death that we deserve and he paid our debt at the cross with his blood that we might be forgiven. This is the great miracle of the scriptures. I mean, this is the great miracle in the world that sinful people can be genuinely forgiven, that all of your sins, regardless of what you've done, can be forgiven, that you can, you can be made new by the grace of God. But see, justification is more than forgiveness. Justification begins with the forgiveness of our sins, but because you're in Christ, now you possess all the riches of God. You possess all of his wealth. We've been made infinitely rich in Christ. If you have Christ, you have everything. If you have Christ, you're infinitely rich. If you have Christ, we will spend all of eternity exploring the riches of his grace, the riches of his righteousness. If you have Christ, we've been blessed in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. And he's done all of this for us because of his great love. All of it is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. Righteousness is a gift. And it is given to those who have faith in God, who trust his promises. We have been made infinitely rich by his grace. Now, just to close, I want to show you uh, one verse or two verses that I want you to think about. And I want you to remember the three components of faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. See, in order to believe, in order to have real biblical faith, you need to know what God promises. And what God promises here 
is that you will be saved. You will be justified. You will be given eternal life because of the grace of God if you have faith in the promise, if you put your faith in Christ. That's the knowledge. Now, many of you would affirm that. You would say, that's true. We're not saved by our works. But there, there is a third step that is required. If you want eternal life, you may be wondering, okay, how do I, how do I become a Christian? How am I justified? Have I ever been justified? The third step is that you must entrust yourself to Christ. You must commit yourself entirely to Christ. And when you do, God sees your faith and he justifies you. He gives you salvation. He makes you a child of God. And all of it is received by faith. So do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Have you put your faith in Christ? If you haven't, you should do that today. And brothers and sisters, the way you grow in your salvation is the same way you were saved. How were you saved? By grace through faith. Believing the promise of God. How do you grow up in your salvation? By grace through faith. By believing the promise of God. What is God requiring of you today? To believe. To believe his word. To rest in his grace. To, to, to trust in his kindness towards us in Christ. And so we don't want to go on auto autopilot as Christians. Autopilot doesn't take us where we want to go. It will not produce the sanctification God desires. So believe the promises of God. Know them, affirm them, and, tr and trust yourself to God. Let's go ahead and pray.